Father, we rejoice that there are tidings of comfort and joy because of the coming of our Savior, Jesus. We sing the words, long lay the world in sin and error pining. The world was subjected to futility and was waiting and waiting and waiting. And then you sent your own son into the world, not to condemn it, but to save it, to save us. And now the light of the knowledge of the glory of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And Lord, we want to be people who are reflecting that glory. Not just today, not just this season, but in every day and in every season. So Lord, we pray that you would do that work in us, even as we come before your word now. Open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year at Christmas, we all face a rather enormous and pressing question. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Yes. Listen to this. Is somebody, people have strong opinions about this for some reason. I'm not trying to split the church here, but let's just take a poll. Um, raise your hand if you think it's not a Christmas movie. Oh, okay. Sizable portion here. How many of you raise your hand if you're wrong? Okay, all right. Okay, there's some there. All right. I think there's another movie from the same era that we should be having a debate about whether or not it's a Christmas movie. It's the movie Rocky IV. Rocky IV. How many of you remember that movie? Um, Rocky's best friend, Apollo Creed, agrees to fight this big Russian who's come over. He's dishonored the country. And this big Russian's named Ivan Drago. And Apollo Creed comes in cocky and Drago comes in grim and determined. And it turns out that the Russian isn't just better. He's devastatingly better. And after one round, Rocky's you know, begging to throw in the towel and, and, and Apollo won't let, let him do it. And then in this you know, second round, I guess it was, you know, Rocky throws in the towel right as Ivan Drago lands what would be a death blow. And Creed goes down and, and, and dies. And as Rocky's holding his friend dying there, Drago says, if he dies, he dies, you know. And, um, and so Rocky, right there, immediately he plans that he's going to fight Drago, even over the protests of his wife. He's resolving that he has to avenge Apollo's death and defend the honor of his country. So it's not just a grudge match. It's two worlds collide, rival nations, um, east against west, man against man. Okay, it's this, it's this bigger thing than just, the, just two men. And so the whole match um, um, takes on this Cold War apocalypticism. That's what's going on in the movie. Drago agrees to fight Rocky, but he says he'll only do it if they fight in Russia and then fight when? On Christmas Day. Okay, so it's a Christmas movie, right? Um, Rocky goes to Russia. He puts up this impossible fight, beats the Russian, and um, he just punishes him. And somehow in the middle of this fight, just because he fought so well... All the Russians in the, in the audience begin chanting, Rocky, Rocky, Rocky. They're pulling for Rocky. Their allegiances transform magically in the middle. of I mean, Only Americans could write a movie like this, and people actually believe it. <laughs> and uh, I was believing it. You know, They've got a Soviet premiere in there, and even he sort of flips over at the end. And so um, after the fight, Rocky gives this speech to the Russians, and... It's the, the speech is the theme of the movie. And this is the speech. I wrote it down for you, okay? He says, during this fight, I've seen a lot of changing in the way you feel about me and in the way I feel about you. In here, there were two guys killing each other, but I guess that's better than 20 million. Cold War, right? 
I guess what I'm trying to say is that if I can change and you can change, everybody can change. And then they all start cheering. And uh, it's the end of the movie. And so just like that, all the Russians are all on board with what Rocky, the, the premier, is standing up. He's clapping as if to say, okay, oh, enough of that communism. No more, you know, we're all done with that. And it's just unbelievable. Now, I look back at this now. I saw this in the movie theater in 1985. And I'll never forget it because I saw it with my best friend, Barry Jocelyn. We stood in our seats in the theater, cheering during this fight. It was ridiculous. Um, you know, we, we, we just couldn't believe it. But now I'm looking back on this, on this whole storyline, and I view it a little bit differently. It seems really implausible to me that hearts and minds and worldviews and allegiances could be transformed so dramatically all at once by a boxing match. And yet, without this transformation that goes on in the midst of this movie, the story doesn't work. In fact, the theme of personal change is the story. It's the whole point. It's not just that you know, Russians and Americans are changing. Rocky's changing, leaving behind vengeance and all the rest. And so if Rocky can change and they can change, the world can change. You know, that, I mean, it just seems so implausible to me to, that a boxing match could bring this, this all about. And yet it's absolutely necessary for the story to work. So I'm telling this because I think there's a, a kind of a similar dynamic that goes on with our own lives. As sinners who are alienated from God because of sin, we are absolutely in need of change. We have to be transformed as sinners who are alienated from God. But the change that's required is really implausible if you think about it. If you know yourself well enough, if you, if you know your own heart well enough, then you know that it's going to take more than a boxing match and a speech or any other thing that a human could invent to change your wayward heart, to fix you. Even after the initial change that we experience at conversion, all of us understand that sin just seems to kind of hang around. And sometimes even though we know that the change is necessary, it seems so implausible to us when it seems to be taking place so slowly. And when we still seem to have so many setbacks, we're all sinners, right? And sometimes it feels, have you ever felt like this, even as a Christian? You know, that it's just, that sin is so intractable sometimes in our hearts. You can feel like that we can no more change, you know, ourselves than a leopard could change his, his spots. That's actually the wrong perspective, at least as far as the gospel is concerned, at least as far as the apostle Paul is concerned. If you haven't already, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. We are at the very end of a passage where Paul has been contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. The Old Covenant has glory, but it's nothing compared to the glory of the New Covenant. The law that was engraved on stones brings death, we found out. But the law that's engraved on the heart in the new covenant brings life. And so in that sense, the old covenant brings condemnation and the new covenant brings righteousness. And those of us in the new covenant don't have a veil lying over our hearts like Moses had a, 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 a veil on his face. In Christ, we found out that the veil has been taken away. But then in this final verse of the chapter, Paul moves from the change between the old covenant and the new covenant to the change or the transformation that must occur in all of us. A transformation that may seem implausible, but which is absolutely necessary for every single Christian's life. And so I told you last time that we were going to have one sermon on one verse. And so the verse is verse 18. Paul says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what I want to do is to give you six observations about the central theme of this text 
which is transformation. Here are the six observations. I'm going to talk about the meaning of transformation, the goal of transformation, the source of transformation, the means of transformation, the progress of transformation, and the scope of transformation. So those are the six items, the meaning, the goal, the source, the means, the progress, the scope of transformation. And so Paul says this, first of all, about the meaning of transformation. Everybody look at the verse. He says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. And then here's the key phrase, are being transformed. So the main clause in this text, in this complicated sentence is we are being transformed. That's the central idea there. Everything else in the sentence revolves around that. We are being transformed. That word transformed comes from the Greek word metamorpho. We get our word metamorphosis from it. So it's not unfamiliar to us. Like our English term, metamorpho is a term that means change. That's what transformation is all about. It means change. The, this word only appears in the Bible three other times. So there's four uses of this term in the scripture, in all of scripture. Now, the first two instances are in Matthew chapter 17 and in Mark 9, where we read about Jesus's transfiguration. And in that instance, we see that the outward appearance of Jesus is transformed. It's transformed or changed in a way that it's visible to the naked eye. So his face shines like the sun and his garments gleam white as light, the text says. So it's very much a change that's visible that you could see with the naked eye. But there's this one other use of the term in the Bible and it's a use that occurs in Paul's writings and it's in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And many of you know this because you've memorized this verse where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed, metamorpho, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may able to discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the key thing to note in Paul's use of this term is that he's not describing a transformation that is literally visible to the naked eye. This transformation happens by the renewal of the mind. And it enables a person to discern what the will of God is. So it's not merely an external transformation, but an internal transformation. So Paul means to indicate that the, the, the transformation of the inner man, not merely of what you see on the outside. So what does that mean? It means it's a moral transformation. It's a transformation of the heart. Now, this should not be a surprise to us, given what Paul has been saying about the new covenant up until this point in the text. The old covenant engraved on stone cannot, in, cannot help a sinner to change from sinner to saint. All the old covenant engraved on stones can do is reveal that you are a sinner. But it can't fundamentally change you as long as it's only engraved on stones. The new covenant, however, is different because it's written on the heart and it's able to transform a person from the inside out so a person who's transformed in their deeds but who does not have a transformed heart is not a christian because the new covenant works from the inside out you remember we read jeremiah 31 i'm going to read it to you again the prophecy of the new covenant Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. So the fundamental 
reality of the new covenant is that it's not letters engraved on stone, but letters written by the Spirit on the human heart. And Paul's been trying to say the new covenant excels the old old covenant because of this. And so when he's talking about transformation now, this is what is, is in the background. It's a transformation of the heart. Anything less than an inside-out transformation is a forgery. It's not New Covenant transformation. And this last Wednesday was National Signing Day for college football. And I was watching uh, LSU sign the number one recruit in the nation. I think it was the number one defensive tackle. This guy named Mason Smith. And so I don't know if you guys ever pay attention to college football recruiting, but what these guys do when they're going to sign, they usually make some kind of a production out of it, usually at their high school or something like that. And so Mason Smith, they use at his high school. And um, when it was time for him to announce who he was going to sign for, he comes out from behind the curtain and he's wearing an LSU hat and an LSU shirt. And everybody, yay, you know, cheers. He's staying home. He's going to stay in the state. And then he sits down at the table and he signs his letter of intent and... Uh, it was really interesting because he, he filmed it on his Instagram and put it up on Instagram. So it was all very homemade looking, which made me think I could have put together a video like this. Um, I could have set up my phone for a video, gathered some friends to cheer for me. I could come out from behind a curtain, wear an LSU hat, wear an LSU shirt. I could sit at a table and sign something, <laughs> Okay. I could have done all of that myself and pull something off just like Mason Smith did. But guess what? If I showed up at practice in Baton Rouge in the spring, I would get laughed off of the field. They probably wouldn't let me on the field. Why? Because the qualification to be on that field is not merely dressing like an LSU Tiger and making a video like Mason Smith. You actually have to be an LSU Tiger. Otherwise, it's just fake and phony. And made up. It's the same thing with us here. When you're standing before God at the final judgment, you can't claim your place by saying, well, I went to church, my parents went to church, you know, I kind of did what Christians do, I didn't do the bad things, but I mainly did the good things. Uh Uh-uh. That by itself is not going to cut it. It won't do to sort of look like a Christian. You actually have to be a Christian which means your makeover has to begin in the heart. It will work its way out, but it has to begin in the heart. And you have to be converted because real Christians begin their walk with Christ by being born again by the Spirit, repenting of their sin, believing and trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then, if you're a real Christian, you walk in that new life. Your life is changed. You undergo moral transformation from the inside out into the image of Christ. That's what real, live, bona fide Christians experience. Transformation from the inside out. Biblical transformation involves obedience from the heart. Not merely some kind of a reshuffling of the exterior. You remember how Jesus confronted the Pharisees? What do you call them? Whitewashed tombs, experts at reshuffling the exterior, but dead on the inside. Paul's saying that's not what the new covenant ministry is. The new covenant ministry is a transformation. That's the meaning of transformation. It's a transformation from the inside out. But look at this, the second thing, the goal of transformation. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. That's the phrase, into the same image. So what that phrase means is that this verse is not talking about, you know, a a generic transformation or your extreme home makeover of your life. It's not a directionless transformation. It's not leaving you to yourself to determine what kind of moral makeover you need to undergo. No, it says that biblical transformation makes you into the same image. Same image as what? Well, in context, it's the image of Christ, isn't it? Beholding is in a mirror the glory of the Lord. 
So he's talking about the image of Christ. We are created in the image of God, but that image has been marred and distorted by sin. So sin doesn't erase the image of God in us. It just mars the image of God in us. But when you look at Christ, Christ is sinless. And he is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his nature. In order to restore the image in us to its pre-fall perfection, we have to become like Christ. And so that's why biblical transformation is always centered on Christ-likeness. What he is is what we must become. Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. You laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on a new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So Christianity Christianity is about a transformation into the image of Christ. That's the goal. And so when you read that we are being made over into the image of Christ, understand that this implies a total transformation from new birth to resurrection. So one day our bodies will be changed in the twinkling of an eye and we will be perfectly in the image of in, in, in his image in the age to come. In the meantime, before that, that day, we are being made into his image morally, in our character. We're still in fallen bodies, but we are still being made over right now by the Spirit. But you have to understand that this is more than the adoption of new rules in your life. It's the acquisition of Christ's virtues in your life. So what's that, what's that mean? It means that whatever Jesus is, we must become that as well. If Jesus is holy, then we must be holy. If Jesus is righteous, then we must be righteous. If Jesus loves his enemies, then we must love our enemies. If Jesus is meek and lowly of heart, then we must be meek and lowly of heart. That's what it means. We don't come out of the box naturally inclining towards these things. We come out of the box naturally inclining towards the opposite of those things. It's what we call sin. So how do we cultivate these virtues? Is this just something that we're left to, you know, come up with ourselves? Are we, you know, supposed to get saved by grace and then we just try real hard to get these other virtues in us? Well, the answer to that is no, and we see this in the third thing. So the meaning of transformation, the goal of transformation, but look at the source of transformation. Look at the verse. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, a couple of things to notice here, two things to notice one, the verb phrasing in, are being transformed. Did you notice that that's in the passive voice? That means that the subject, we, we're not performing the action of the verb. We're receiving the action of the verb. And so in this case, that means that we're not transforming ourselves. We are being transformed by someone else. Who's the agent of this transformation? Well, it's right there in the last line. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, that line is hearkening back to verse 17, isn't it? Where Paul says that the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And so in our last message on this text, we learned that Paul's language here is informed by Exodus 34. You remember that? Um where Paul is consistently using that term Lord to refer to Yahweh and the appearance of Yahweh to, to him in the tent of meeting. And so Paul has identified the spirit with Yahweh. And then he calls him the spirit of Yahweh. It's the same thing at the end of verse 18 here. In fact, some translators render that last phrase as this comes from the spirit of the Lord. I think that's a, a fair translation of it. Well, what does this mean? It means, yes, that the Spirit is God, 
It, that is a true theological inference from this. Um, but it's also true that it means that the Spirit was the agent of Moses' transformation in Exodus 34, and it means that the Spirit is the agent of our transformation as well. Transformation is not something that we do to ourselves. It's something that the Spirit of Almighty God is working inside of us. It is the Spirit of God inside the people of God remaking us into the image of God. Let me be clear here, in in case it's not to anyone who may be visiting. I'm not saying that this is happening in every single human being on the face of the planet. I'm not saying that. This is happening among the people of God. who are the, Those are the people who've been reborn by the Spirit of God. They've come to see Jesus for who he is, the Son of God, who died on a cross to pay for our sins, who was risen from the dead to give us eternal life. Everybody who repents of their sin and believes in him, those are the people of God. Okay? And so this is what's happening to them. This transformation is not happening to everyone else. In in fact, this transformation is impossible for everyone else. So what does this mean? It means that your transformation, if you're a Christian in here, your transformation into the image of Christ is all of grace. You can't take any credit for it. If the Spirit weren't doing this inside of you, it would never happen in you. Because you don't have the ability by yourself to transform yourself. So if there's anything of the image of Christ in you, you have the Spirit of God to thank for that. Not yourself. Because the Spirit is the source of your transformation. Somebody might hear that and they'll say, well, great. I'm a Christian. Spirit's the source of my transformation. He'll take care of that. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I can just sort of just, you know, let everything sort of work out, you know, and I can be passive with respect to this, this work. Actually, that would be the wrong way for you to re- respond to this truth. That's not what the Bible teaches about what the grace of God produces in us. It does not produce that kind of a passive response to what the Spirit is doing inside of us. Because the Bible teaches that the Spirit works through means So the first thing is the meaning of transformation, the goal of transformation, the source of transformation. Fourth thing, the means of transformation. Look again at verse 18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That phrase, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, in the original, that word beholding is a participle of means, okay? And so, I think maybe a more precise translation would be something like this. By means of beholding the glory of the Lord with an unveiled face, we are being transformed. So, the transformation happens by means of beholding the glory of Jesus. Face unveiled, looking at him. Now, again, Moses is in the background. Moses in Exodus 34. What happened with Moses in Exodus 34? Moses would go into the presence of the Lord with no veil on his face. You remember that? He would, he, the, the children of Israel were afraid to see him when the glory was shining on his face. So when he spoke to the children of Israel, he had a veil over his face. But when he goes into the presence of the Lord, veil's removed, right? So he goes in, he beholds the glory of the Lord with an unveiled face, and his own appearance changed to reflect that glory of the Lord that he was beholding. He's beholding glory. He begins to reflect that glory. Now Paul is saying the same thing happens to us. We are like Moses in the presence of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord. And guess what? We're being changed by that glory as we behold it. So here's the question. In what sense do we behold the glory of the Lord. You think about Moses. He's, this, he, Moses is walking physically somehow into the presence of God, seeing something with his eyes. That's, we haven't done that, right? Uh, so, so what does this mean that we're beholding the glory of the Lord? Well, the answer to that is, is just a few verses down in chapter 4. Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 4, even if our gospel is veiled... It's veiled to those who are perishing. 
So a veil covers the glory, and then when you remove the veil, reveals the glory. But what's the veil covering up? It's covering gospel, isn't it? Then look at verse 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What's this verse saying? Well, it's saying that we're different from unbelievers. They can't see because they have a veil over their eyes. But we know that when Moses turned to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Likewise, we have turned to the Lord and the veil is taken away from us. For where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So we're not veiled. We can see what we should see as it, we ought to see as it were. And according to verse 4, we're beholding the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. We can see Christ because we can see the gospel. And just as Moses' seeing the glory of the Lord changed him, so also our seeing the gospel of the glory of Christ changes us. So how do we see him? Do we see him with our eyes physically in the flesh? No. It's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We aren't seeing Christ literally in the flesh right now, but we are only able to see him in the gospel. The glory of Christ stands forth for us in the gospel. So when we go back to chapter 3 and verse 18, what does this mean? Paul's saying we're beholding the glory of the Lord. What does it mean? It means that we are transformed by means of beholding Christ in the gospel. It's the apostolic message of Christ that is the means by which we are transformed. In other words, if we want to behold Christ and be transformed by him, we have to behold him in this message, in this book. This message that's been preached to us. We have the message inscribed for us in the Bible. If you want to see Christ, you have to see him in the Bible. The message in the Bible is the means that God has established for you to become more and more Christ-like. That's it. Jesus prayed for us to be transformed by this means. You remember in John chapter 17, verse 15? I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is about to die on the cross. He's praying for people who are going to believe in him through his apostles' testimony. What's he pray? Praise for our sanctification, that we be made holy. And he prays for the means by which we will be made holy, by truth. And God's word is truth. Paul says a similar thing. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And then he says this, which performs its work in you who believe. The word of God performs a work in you who believe. And it's ongoing. It doesn't just start and stop when you're converted. It keeps going. This work of the word of God in our hearts. So you see what this means. It means that the message that saved you is the same message that's going to sanctify you. Just as the word of God brought you to Christ, so the word of God will keep you in Christ and make you into the image of Christ. Because this word from start to finish is about Christ, this is where you are going to behold him and be transformed by what you see. You will gaze at Christ in the word of God as it's preached in this pulpit, as it's set forth in the elements of the supper, as we sing it, as we encourage one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. I mean, all of the means of grace, think about it, that the Lord has given us are word-centered means, aren't they? That all of them are. Because that's the plan. That's plan A. No plan B. It's a word-centered trans transformation. If we're going to be transformed into the image of Christ, we have to give ourselves to this book. Some of you may have read Ernest Klein's 2011 novel, Ready Player One. Anybody read that book? Um, it's a fascinating book. 
Um, the story is set in the United States in a dystopian future in the year 2044. The main character, Wade Watts, is this awkward teenage gamer and, and hacker. And um, he's a computer hacker. And Wade and every other person on the planet escapes the daily gloom of this future dystopia by immersing themselves in this online world called the Oasis. By the way, don't watch the movie. It's, it's nothing like the book. It's, what I'm telling you now won't even be evident there. But, um, but there, th- this, the whole world tries to get away from the fallenness of the world by immersing themselves in an online world, which is a game called the Oasis. And there was this eccentric billionaire who was a recluse named James Halliday who created this world called the Oasis. And he left his fingerprints all over this world that he had made. And so, in a nutshell, the Oasis is this homage to James Halliday, the creator's childhood and his love of pop culture from the 1980s, which is why I kind of like it. I like pop culture from the 80s. And so, after he died, he left a video message for the world announcing this contest in the Oasis and the contest requires players to locate these hidden keys that lead to this Easter egg. And if you find the Easter, whoever finds the Easter egg first, they, they inherit the creator's creation, okay? And they um, inherit his fortune and they become rulers over his creation, whoever finds this Easter egg first. The only way to advance in the game is to become a devotee of the creator. To unlock all the keys, you have to know his tastes, You have to know what he liked. You have to know how he thought. And the creator, Halliday, even left behind this book called Anorak's Almanac, which is made up of various undated journal entries from the creator's life. And so to inherit the fortune and rule the oasis, you had to know how the creator thinks. And to know how he thinks, you had to to know the creator's book. And so the plot revolves around this kid, Wade Watts, who's mastered the creator's book and his mind so that he could be transformed to think and react like the creator would have, and everything rides on him mastering that that book. I would argue that the same thing is, is true for us. Everything rides on our ability to master our creator's book because that's how we know him. If you want to know him, you have to know Jesus. If you want to know Jesus, you have to know the revelation that tells us about Jesus. And it's just that simple. If you try to know him apart from this revelation, you will end up worshiping the God of your own imagination. It'll be maybe some Jesus, but not the Jesus. It won't be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what I'm trying to get you to see. I want you to realize that God's grace and your efforts to avail yourselves of the means of grace are not at odds. In other words, grace and effort to avail yourself of the means of grace are not at odds. Your efforts to learn and to study, to listen to preaching, to participate in this community, to encourage one another, to reprove one another, All of these word-centered means that God has established and your efforts to to be a part of this and to give yourself to this, it's not at odds with grace. It's the evidence of grace in your life that you are making those efforts. These are the means by which he works in you because the Spirit of God works through the Word of God within the hearts of the people of God. You lay hold of this revelation And you give yourself to this revelation. Okay, so the meaning of transformation, the goal of transformation, the source of transformation, the means of transformation. Fifth, the progress of transformation. Look at verse 18 again. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Two key phrases I want you to observe are are being transformed and from one degree of glory to another. Did you notice that the verb is not only passive but also progressive? In other words, the work of transformation is a process that unfolds over the course of a believer's life. So you've heard of the the doctrine of progressive sanctification. 
That's what this is. Your regeneration happens in a moment. Your transformation from fallen body to resurrected body will happen in a twinkling of an eye. But guess what happens in between? Long slog. Process. That's what happens. Sanctification, or here, transformation, occurs over the course of your life. It does not happen all at once. For me, this is really encouraging. (laughs) I hope it's encouraging to you because every single one of us is still struggling with sin. And it's encouraging to know that we are, at any given moment, a work in progress. We are not now what we will be. And we have a hope in something greater to come. And we don't have to be discouraged by the setbacks that we see and the shortcomings that we see in ourselves. What Our end defines us, not our present. But here's the thing. It's not a static process because it's not without progress. Because transformation, it says, is from one degree of glory to another. Literally, if you're looking at the NASB, it gives it more literally. It says, from glory to glory. So you remember how earlier in the chapter, Paul's contrasts, Paul contrasts the glory of the Old Covenant with the greater glory of the New Covenant? There was progress from one degree of glory to another, from a lesser glory to a greater glory. He's saying the same thing here. He's saying that our transformation into the image of Christ works like that. There's progress from lesser glory to greater glory, which means we grow. We become more and more like Christ through the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in our lives. That does not mean that we become sinless instantly. Transformation is not about perfection in this life, but it is about a decisive change of direction in this life. And one day at the end, we will be perfected. But it's an ever-increasing glory. So there's a new trajectory of virtue growing inside of each one of us who are in Christ because of the Spirit's work inside of us. And we are to avail ourselves of the means of grace that he's given to us to see this come to fruition in our lives. This is important because we need to see that it's a process, but we also need to see that it's progress. Which means if... There's no progress in your life. You need to be asking yourselves some real questions. Do I have this spirit that's moving from one degree of glory to another? Now, I'm saying that as a sinner who feels certain things in my own heart are so intractable. Okay? Um, So we're not talking about perfection here, but we are talking about progress. Is the Lord growing you? Is there a sense of the fact that the Spirit is in an ever-increasing way owning you? I think this is why Paul will say things like he says at the end of this book, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Unless indeed you fail the test. There was an expectation that this transformation would be in some way visible, in a way that was testable in a way that's discernible. The meaning, the goal, the source, the means, the progress of transformation. Finally, the scope of transformation. And here's the key phrase from verse 18 on the scope of transformation. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. We all. Do you remember that in every sermon on 2 Corinthians, from the first one until now, I've been making a big deal to make sure that you know that when Paul speaks about we and us, he's using a figure of speech called the apostolic we. So when he says we and us, he means I and me. So chapter 1, verse 8, we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction which came to us in Asia. That means I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction that came to me in Asia. And it was some very specific things that happened to him. 
Chapter 3, verse 1, this very chapter. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of recommendation to you or from you? He means, do I need a letter of recommendation? That's what he, remember the, the whole thing we've been talking about up until this point. In all of these cases, Paul's referring to himself with a plural expression. But now, finally, we have something different here in chapter 3 and in verse 18. Because Paul says, we all. That means that everything that he's saying about transformation is not just about him singularly. He's departing from the figure at this point, and he's saying, we all. It's not just for him, it's for all of us. It does not say, we some. We all. Every person in here who knows Christ, this is what biblical transformation looks like. That means that this is what the Spirit is doing in all of us who know him. And nobody is left out. If this work isn't happening in you, you don't have the Spirit. That's what it means. The normal Christian life is not without struggle. It is, there's great struggle in it. There are disappointments in it. There's great sadnesses in it. So I'm not trying to paint this, you know, praise God anyhow, plastic sort of happiness that's not what we're talking about here the normal christian life is not without struggle it's not without setbacks sometimes some grievous idiotic setbacks but we also have to say that the normal christian life is not without progress meaning that if you know christ there's going to be evidence of this in your life the spirit is going to be making his mark on your life in some measure what is that mark? It's Christ-likeness. Guess what Christ-likeness is? It's Galatians 5. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, and gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit is the image of Christ being formed in us. That's what it is. It's this ever-increasing transformation of where those fruits weren't present, now they're becoming present. We weren't those things, but now we're becoming those things. This is my last time to preach to you this year. And, you know, I, I can say that this year has been, in more ways than one, the most difficult that I've ever experienced in ministry. And I didn't start off the year thinking it was going to be like that. Um, we've all felt the convulsions of a pandemic, a lockdown. We weren't even able to meet for a while. Hot racial strife in our city over the summer. Even turmoil in our own body. What's God doing in, in all of this? I was thinking about this this morning, and my mind went back to one of our earlier messages from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, or 2 Corinthians, actually chapter 1. And uh, I delivered that message earlier in the year, in April. And it was before we knew how all these convulsions were going to affect us. We knew we had tough days ahead, but we didn't know just what they would be like. And um, there was a part of the message that came back to my mind as I was thinking about this this morning. And I'm just going to read to you what I wrote and what I said to you in April. If we cannot hear God's whispers in our pleasures, he knows how to raise his voice in our pain. God knows how to sober his saints through suffering. The question you have to ask and answer your, the question you have to ask yourself is this. Will you have ears to hear, not only when he whispers, but especially when he shouts? I feel like he's been shouting. It goes on. Don't get me wrong. I want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. I want all of us to get through this whole, this whole and healthy. But if any of us is desiring for our lives to go back to what they were before the pandemic, then I submit to you that we've missed God's purpose in this trial. And then this is the end. He doesn't want us to be the same after all this. 
I hope you're thinking about this year that way. I hope, I hope you're thinking about every trial and twist and turn of 2020 in that way. And I'm saying that because there's a, there's a vaccine on the horizon. Protests and riots have simmered a little bit. There is kind of a desire. Maybe we can just go back to what everything was before. That's missing the point. We're not supposed to be the same people that we were before. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be grown by all of this. We're supposed to be more conformed to the image of Christ by all of this. I hope we're more humble after all of this. Less presumptuous after all of this. I hope we're more gracious after all of this and more tender-hearted and loving towards one another more single-mindedly allied to the truth as a result of all of this in other words being more like Christ as a result of all of this that's the goal of it and when you look back on the year and there, and you see things that were sad and heartbreaking I do believe that the Lord is going to give us the ability one day to see how he was working in our hearts, in our lives, and in our church. And so I pray that we will all see that and believe that soon. Let me pray. Father, our prayer simply today is that you would transform us into the image of Christ. We know that a light has shown and is bringing glory to the world. And we stare into it as we stare into your revelation. And Father, we just want to be a people who don't run away from it, but who come to the light and who become changed by the light and become transformed by the light. Lord, I pray that people would see the light of the gospel of the glory of God beaming from our faces because we've been in your presence, because we know you. And so they begin to see the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the self-control and the gentleness. Father, I pray you'd spare us from being despondent about the lack of progress in these things. And that you would fill us with hopefulness and faith about how you are going to do these things within us. And I pray you'd do it. And I pray you'd help us to encourage one another, as long as it's still called today, so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but that we might be more and more conformed to his image. I pray you'd do this work in us, and I pray you'd do it in Jesus' name. Amen.